Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, we are in Romans chapter 8 tonight, and um, I want to review just briefly, because each week we come in, and Romans is such a book that builds upon what was there before, upon what was there before. So in chapters 4 and 5, Paul talked about justification, how we get saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then chapter 6, he shifted gears and said, okay, your old life has died to sin. You're no longer dominated by sin. You've been set free from the power of sin in your life. So that doesn't give you an excuse to go ahead and keep sinning. Last week in chapter 7, we discovered, and the, the, the way I understand chapter 7, there's other people that disagree, is that chapter 7 describes the normal Christian life of struggle that we're going to daily struggle with sin. We're going to always be having sin in our lives, and it's just going to be that daily struggle okay? until we get to heaven. Now we get to chapter 8, and chapter 8, the entire focus really of chapter 8, great theology, great teaching, the, the primary focus of chapter 8 is on the powerful role of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. Up to this point, Paul hasn't talked much about the Holy Spirit. He's talked about the Father. He's talked about Jesus. But now he's going to talk about what the Holy Spirit himself has done, is doing, will do in our lives. John Stott, um, I use his commentary a lot, a lot of his commentaries. I like what he wrote. This is in his uh, Romans commentary. John Stott writes this. He says, thus, the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is, and I like these words, animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed, impossible. That's a pretty strong statement that I agree with. Without the Holy Spirit in your life, you and I, number one, would not be saved and we would not be able to grow as a Christian. So before Paul gets to the role of the Holy Spirit, he makes this huge declaration in verse 1 that starts with a therefore that ties back to everything he said back to chapter 3, verse 21. So what does Romans 8, 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the glorious conclusion. There is therefore. Okay. Therefore ties back to what he's been talking about. And I believe he's going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 21, and everything he said up to this point about our great salvation. And what does he say? There is, and the way it's worded in the Greek, you don't quite get it in your English, but here's the way you would translate it. There is therefore now absolutely, positively, 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what is condemnation? Condemnation means you are no longer under any penalty, punishment, judgment for your sins. You will never have to pay for your sins. You'll never be held accountable for your sins. Your sins have been paid in full, absolutely fully and finally. And Romans 8.1 is a mirror image of Romans 5.1. Okay? Turn to Romans 5.1. Romans 5.1, Romans 8.1. They are mirror images. Okay? Romans 5.1 is stated positively. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the result of being justified? We have peace with God. Romans 8.1, because we're in Christ Jesus, we have no, negatively, we have no condemnation. We are no longer condemned. We're no longer lost. We're no longer unregenerate. We are dead to sin. Our old self has been crucified. We're dead to the law. All those things that chapter 6 and 7 have told us, we are in Christ with no condemnation. That being said, as a big glorious conclusion, now in verse 2, he begins to discuss life in the Spirit and what it means to be set free by the Spirit. So let's read uh, let's read chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, verse 2 is very, very important because verse 2, Paul tells us what the Holy Spirit has done in our salvation. Okay, The law of the Spirit, that's just another way of saying the power of the Spirit, um, the Holy Spirit. What's the key word there? What has the Holy Spirit done? You guys look at it. What, what does it say? Set you free. The Holy Spirit has set you free from what? From, what does it say? The law of sin and death. So everything that chapter 6 was talking about and chapter 7 was talking about, He sets you free from what? He sets you free from being in Adam back in chapter 5. The Holy Spirit sets you free from the bondage of sin. The Holy Spirit sets you free from your old man. The Holy Spirit sets you free from the law. He set you free. Now, let's just look at the grammar. I'm going to be real basic tonight. Who's setting who free? Is the Holy Spirit setting you free or are you setting yourself free? The Holy Spirit is setting us free. So here's the question. Did you set yourself free? No. Could you set yourself free? Okay, let me ask you a question. Why? We're going to have a little conversation tonight. A little bit more interaction since there's not as many of you tonight because of the weather. Why could you not set yourself free? You were dead. 
Well, I'm sorry, go ahead. You, you were spiritually dead. Jenny. Uh, okay, we're the one that caused the problem. We, we were, we're dead. We're in Adam. We're spiritually unable to do that. We're dominant. All those things that chapter 6 and 7 told us. We were dominated by sin. We were in Adam. We were unregenerate. We were dominated by the law. All of those things we could not get ourselves out of. So because we were in that dire condition, only the Holy Spirit could set us free. Now here's the question. Here's the theological question. How, okay, how did the Holy Spirit set you free? And when did the Holy Spirit set you free? And let me give you the theological answer to that. Okay, when and how. Okay, if the Holy Spirit has set you free, when did that happen and how that happened? Let me give you the theological term for that. It is called regeneration. Regeneration. We talk about this a lot here at Emmanuel. Regeneration. It's a biblical word. It basically means to be born again. So when did the Holy Spirit set you free? When He caused you to be born again. Can you cause yourself to be born again? Why? Because of all those things that we saw back in chapter 6 of being spiritually dead and dominated by the flesh. So let's look at some scriptures. I've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. seven. That's a good biblical number, Sean. Glad you put 7 in there just to prove your point. So 7 scriptures that talk about regeneration and what it means for the Holy Spirit to set you free. Okay, so John 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. How is anybody ever going to come to Jesus unless something happens? What has to happen to you in order to come to Jesus? You have to be drawn. Who draws you? The Holy Spirit draws you to Christ. Okay? John 6.65, Jesus in the same conversation says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. How are you going to come to Jesus? The Father has to grant you. The Father has to give you that new life to be able to come. Okay? Who gives that life that sets you free? What does Paul say here in verse 2? The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Okay, what does Jesus say in John 6, 63? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Who gives you life? The Holy Spirit gives you life. Okay, let's see this happen in real time. In Acts 16, 14, one who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Who opened whose heart? Did she open her heart? The Lord opened her heart. Okay. So these are just different metaphors for what it means to be regenerated. Paul says the Holy Spirit sets you free. Jesus says the Holy Spirit draws you. Jesus says the Holy Spirit gives you life. Luke here in Acts 16 says the Lord opened her heart. Okay, what does Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 say? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, okay, there's that old condition, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. 
God made us alive, which means we were dead. Did you make yourself alive or did God make you alive? God made you alive. Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. By the way, this Sunday's sermon is an amalgam. That's a good word. What's an amalgam? It's a coming together of what we've been learning on Romans. In a, like everything we've been learning in Romans comes together in our Exodus sermon this Sunday. So if you want to understand the bronze basin, Romans 5, 6, 7. <laughs> and that's, I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay? And you're like, what? So all the things we've been hearing about in Romans here on Wednesday night, they're going to come out this Sunday as we talk about what the bronze basin represents. So listen for those things. You'll be like, am I on Wednesday night or am I on Sunday morning? It's all coming together in my head. All right, 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's caused us to be born again. Okay, so... Let me just ask you a very simple question. We often talk about the Father. We often talk about Jesus the Son. But sometimes we don't talk about the Holy Spirit a lot in our churches. Would you be saved today without the Holy Spirit? Why? Takes all three of them to do it? Okay, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I know what you're saying, Rico. Okay, so the Father planned your salvation. He predestined you. He chose you before the foundations of the world. You would not be saved without the Father planning it, choosing, predestining. Who died for you? Jesus. You would not have salvation without Jesus. Okay, when did your salvation, when, when did the election or your predestination take place? Before time. When did Jesus die on the cross? 2,000 years ago. Okay. But what happens to you in time that actually makes you a Christian? The Holy Spirit has to do that work in your heart to bring you to life. And so if you have not been set free by the Spirit, if you have not been regenerated, if you've not been born again, there's no way you can be saved. So the Holy Spirit has to do that. The Holy Spirit has to set you free. So it takes, it takes all three. I don't mean that like they're like, you understand, I understand. There's the three persons of the Trinity work together, Father, Son, and Spirit to grant us our salvation. Okay? So the Spirit has set you free. The Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again. The Holy Spirit has done this work. The Holy Spirit's taken you out of that old condition and brought you into this new condition. You are de- you're free from death and sin. Okay, now let's look at verses 3 and 4. Do you remember last week in chapter 7, it was all about the law. What the, remember what we found out last week? The law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments inherently. It's good, it's righteous, it's holy. But the law can't save you. The law can't produce within you the ability to keep it. The law just shows how much of a sinner you really are because you can't keep it. 
So in verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us what the law could not do. The law could not give us spiritual life. The law could not give us the ability to obey it. Um, So what does he say in verses 3 and 4? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Okay, God has done something for us that the law could not do. What could the law not do? The law could not save us. And let me ask you this question. In your spiritually dead state, could you in any way keep the law? No. So you can't be saved by the law and you can't keep the law. You can do nothing to earn your salvation in the law. So the question then becomes, what did God do to overcome the need for the law to be obeyed? So let's ask a very important question. If God's law is holy, good, and righteous, and His law has to be obeyed, how's that going to happen? Who's the only person that can obey God's law perfectly? Jesus. So what do you think God's going to do to help us be able to obey the law and have the law fulfilled in us that we can't do in our spiritual deadness? What does He say there? Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by his flesh could not do. So what did God do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, don't be confused by in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul is not saying that Jesus sinned. What Paul is saying is, is that what we need is we needed Jesus to come in the flesh to be born as a human through the virgin birth so that he could perfectly obey and fulfill the law we could never obey. Now, what would happen if Jesus was merely a man? He could possibly what? Sin. What would happen if Jesus was only God and not a man? Could he come and live a life on earth and die? So in God's sovereignty, Jesus came to earth. God sent Jesus to earth at Christmas time in the flesh, fully God, fully man, never sinned so that Jesus could obey the law that we could never obey. So we have to be very careful. Jesus never once sinned. Even though he came in the flesh, and even though he had a human body, and even though he cried and he got hungry and he experienced all the things we experience in a physical body, the one exception between us and Jesus is that he never once sinned. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never once knew sin. Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet what? Is without sin. What would happen if Jesus ever sinned? We wouldn't be saved. Okay. Now, because Jesus came in the flesh... What did he do in relationship to God's law? 
What's required for God's law? Perfect obedience in thought, word, and deed perfectly. Has there been anybody on earth been able to do that? Who's the only person, and we can say that, who's the only person, fully God and fully man, that did that? Jesus. Okay, Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, notice what verse 4 says. Okay, so God did something. God knew that you and I would never, ever be able to obey the law. The only thing that the law does is that it shows us how sinful we are. We can never obey it. So God sent Jesus in the flesh to live the perfect life we could never live, and he obeyed God fully, perfectly. Now here's the beauty of what happens. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now think about that for a moment. The righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Can we keep the righteous requirements of the law? Can we obey perfectly in thought, word, and deed? Who did that for us? Jesus. Okay, so the question then becomes, okay, how does the righteous requirements of the law that Jesus did for us, how does that become ours? How does his record become our record? And it goes back to justification. Okay, when we trusted Christ for salvation, His perfect record of righteousness was credited to us as if we had perfectly obeyed the law like He did. His record became our record. So God can look down upon you. When you trust Jesus for salvation, not only are your sins forgiven, but God can look down upon you and say, your life is that of Christ and you are the righteous requirements of the law are perfectly fulfilled in you because Jesus did it on your behalf. That's amazing news. So there are, in, this, in these two verses, verses 3 and 4, there are five important truths. Yes, sir. Yeah, the bank. Yes, the bank account diagram. Right. Yes, Jerry, you're you're actually you're absolutely right. It goes two ways. Remember, right. the sin goes out of our account into Jesus, and His righteousness goes out of His account into ours. So it's a it's called a double imputation. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jerry. Good good memory. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about these important theological truths. Without these, without these truths we would not be saved. So truth number one, the incarnation. What's the incarnation? Jesus came in the likeness of human flesh. He was born of a virgin. He came in the flesh to live on earth perfectly. Okay. The second thing we call the active obedience of Christ. What the active obedience of Christ is, is that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled. He was perfect in thought, word, and deed, and he literally fulfilled everything that God required of us that we could never fulfill by obeying the Ten Commandments perfectly. As the perfect man. Okay, so he came in the flesh. So think about it this way. He was born of a virgin, came in the flesh, the incarnation. 
to live the life that we could never live. And what was that life? A life of perfect obedience. Then notice what Jesus, or notice what Paul says. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's the incarnation, and for sin. Jesus came to die for sin. So you have the sacrificial death of Jesus. So you've got Jesus' birth. You've got Jesus' life. You've got Jesus' death. God sent Jesus for our sins. That's the role of Jesus. Okay, but you also have regeneration. You've got the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Back up to verse 2. The Holy Spirit sets you free. How do you experience all these benefits of what Christ did for you? The Holy Spirit sets you free. He regenerated you. And guess what? Not only does the Holy Spirit regenerate you, but you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Okay. So, let's talk about the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity have secured your salvation. What has God the Father done? He planned it. He purposed it. He sent Jesus. He predestined you. He chose you. He sent His Son. That's what the Father did. What did Jesus do? Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose again. What did the Holy Spirit do? He applied all that Jesus did to you personally at a point in time when He opened your heart and caused you to be born again and set you free. And then now the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So you and I would not be saved without all three persons of the Trinity working in complete harmony to secure our salvation from first to last. Okay. Now Paul's going to give a contrast. What is the difference between a person who's saved and a person who is lost? He likes to give these little contrasts. So in verses 5 through 8, he's got the contrast of who believers in Christ are and who non-believers are. Okay? So let's, let's read verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay. Two types of people. You guys tell me in verse 5, who are the two types of people that Paul's contrasting? Those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. Quick theological question. Can a true Christian live according to the flesh? They can go through periods of struggling with sin, but do they live according to the flesh? No. And how do we know that? Let's think. How do we know that? And all you have to answer is chapter 6. Okay? Just say chapter 6. What happened in chapter 6? You've been set free from all that. Okay? Either the Holy Spirit sets you free from the flesh or He's not. Either your old man has been crucified or He's not. And so 
you're either saved or you're not. So Paul is making a contrast here between those who live according to the flesh, that is those that are dominated by sin, those who are unregenerate, what ends up their mind is always set on the things of the flesh versus a person who lives according to the Spirit whose mind is always on the things of the Spirit. So here's the question. I think we've already answered it, but it's on your sheet, so we might as well ask it. Um, If we've been set free from the law of sin and death by the Holy Spirit, is it even possible for us to live according to the flesh? And we would say, no, it can't because of all the truths that we've seen up to this point. Now, Paul's going to give four descriptions of an unregenerate person, a person who's not been set free by the Holy Spirit, a person that's still in their sins. Okay, so let's look at these. The first thing we find out about an unbeliever is that their mind is death. Okay, look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's a weird way of putting it. It doesn't say it leads to death, which is true. It's a present tense verb. It really means that in your An unregenerate, unsaved person in their condition right now, they are spiritually dead. They don't have life. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has not set them free. They're still in their sins. They're still enslaved to sin. They are spiritually dead. Now, are they just spiritually sick? Or are they spiritually dead? What's the difference between being spiritually sick and being spiritually dead? Let me give you an illustration. What's the difference between a person who's on their deathbed and they're still alive and you've got a medicine that's going to cure their condition and you hand them the medicine and they reach up to get it and they take the medicine? Are they sick or are they dead? They're sick. I go down to the morgue over at Cheney Rager Funeral Home. And I go down where they embalm the dead bodies and I take a big stick pen and poke it in the toe of a corpse. Is the corpse going to jump up and move and say, ow, don't hit me or don't hurt me? Why? The corpse is dead. Which of those two describes the condition of a spiritually dead person? Are we just kind of sort of sick and we can reach out and get medicine or are we totally spiritually dead and need life? We're totally spiritually dead and we need to be set free. So, number one, the unregenerate person is present tense spiritually dead. Their mind, everything that their thought processes, everything about them is death. Okay, look at verse 7. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's an interesting word. They're hostile. What does hostile to God mean? What is hostility? What what, What does that word hostile mean? An unregenerate, unsaved person is hostile. What does that mean? What's hostile mean? What? Against. Against, okay. Is it a little bit stronger even than that? Somebody do a Google search. Do dictionary.com and look up hostile. Not a youth hostile where you stay when you go to Europe. Hostile. What does hostile mean? What imagery does it Antagonistic. Antagonistic. Okay, what else? Unfriendly. Unfriendly. So who's you 
as an unregenerate, unsaved person, you hate God. Now, you may not verbalize that and wake up and say, I hate God. But because your mind is set on the flesh, you are hostile to God. You don't want to be told what to do. You don't want to love God. Everything about you says everything that there is to know about God, I don't want to know about it. As a matter of fact, I hate God. Okay? So let's, let's, let's look at some scriptures that back that up. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Enmity, enemy, hostile, those are all words of, of hostility, of being an enemy. Colossians 1, 21 through 22, and you who were once... Key word there. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. God has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. So you were once hostile. Okay, so an unregenerate person, they're spiritually dead and they're God-haters. <laughs> Not a very good description, is it? Okay. And in number three... They cannot submit to God's law. Notice what it says there. Verse 7. For to set the mind on the flesh is hostile, or for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it, do, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not only do you not obey God's law, what does Paul say there? You cannot. That Greek word there is dunamis, which means you have no power. You have no ability. You cannot. Not that you don't want to. That's true. An unregenerate person doesn't want to. And even if they wanted to, they could not. Let's ask the question, how come you can't submit to God's law? Why? What has Paul just said? You're hostile. You're spiritually dead. Okay? And you think Paul would be done there. Okay, Paul, you're done. Okay? We get the point. We're spiritually dead. We're God-haters. We can't submit to God's law. Why do you keep piling these things on just to remind us of what we were as an unregenerate person? Notice what he says in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot, what? Please God. Please God. That word please means to bring satisfaction or to be worthy or to win favor. So an unregenerate, unsaved, lost person, Paul says, is always living in the flesh. It's not something you float in and out of. You're dominated by the flesh. You are spiritually dead. Your mind is hostile to God. You cannot submit to God's law and you cannot please God. Does that describe believers or unbelievers? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. So John, oh, go ahead. Uh huh. So the sinful person cannot submit to God's law. Well, as believers, we can't submit to God's Okay, that's a good question, Sean. As believers, can we submit to God's law? And the answer is twofold. Yes, we can submit to God's law because of two things. 
that's different about us versus a non-Christian? Because you're thinking, you're thinking good here, Sean. These are the questions you should be thinking. So let me answer. So the question is, become if a unsaved person cannot submit to God's law, does that in turn mean that a Christian can submit to God's law? Okay, yes, but here's why. Number one, the righteous requirements of the law were fulfilled by us in Jesus. So we have his record of submitting to that law that God can look down upon us and say, you've fulfilled all those. But more importantly, who do we have living inside of us that gives us the power to do it? The Holy Spirit lives in us that gives us the power to submit to God's law. So the biggest issue here, remember this whole chapter is about the Holy Spirit. Basically, if you're spiritually dead, if you're hostile to God, if you can't submit to God's law, if you can't please God, what does that fundamentally mean? You don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's going to um, say that. Okay, look at verse 9. You, however, <laughs> Christian, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact... If the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Paul basically says, you're not a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. Paul says, this is not describing you, Christians. Christians, this is not who you are. You are not of the flesh. You're not spiritually dead. You're not unregenerate. You don't hate God. You can't, you know, you're not in that position where you can't submit or please God. You are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So John Murray, who is an older um, commentator, he's dead. He, he wrote back like in the 50s and 60s. He was a South African commentator. And he's got a really good commentary on Romans. He says this. In the whole passage here, we have the biblical basis of the doctrines of total depravity and total inability. Enmity against God is nothing other than total depravity and cannot please God nothing less than total inability. So here's the point. Not only are we not, not only are we spiritually corrupt to the core, we can't do anything to, to save ourselves or do anything to make a positive move towards God. Unless what? The Holy Spirit sets you free. So here's the question. How do you get out of the flesh and get into the spirit. Paul makes this contrast between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. The question is, okay, how do you, how do you get out of being in the flesh? Can you just get yourself out? I'm going to wake up one day and make, and I'm going to wake up one day and I'm not going to be spiritually dead anymore. I'm not going to be hostile to God. I'm going to start submitting to God's law and I'm going to start pleasing God. Does that happen? What's the answer to how do you get out of the flesh and into the spirit? Do you just do that? What has to happen to you? What's the answer? Verse 2. What does verse 2 tell us? The Holy Spirit has set you free. The way to get out of the flesh, unregenerate, into the spirit, saved, regenerate, is the Holy Spirit has to do that for you. He has to set you free. Paul says it this way in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, kind of the same descriptions. Okay, so what we've just seen here in Romans about being spiritually dead and hostile and unable, listen to what he says in Ephesians. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Listen to those descriptions. You're spiritually dead. You're enslaved to Satan. You're enslaved to your flesh. You're, you're influenced by the ways of the world. You're a child of wrath. Um, all, that's almost like exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 2, is the answer of how you get out of that. What is Romans 8, 2? The Holy Spirit has to set you free. What's Paul's answer in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7? How do you get out? He says it just a little bit differently, but it's the same concept. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Okay, Paul's answer in Ephesians is what? He made you alive when you were dead. What's Paul's answer in Romans 8? The Holy Spirit set you free when you were hostile and you were unregenerate. So if anybody's ever going to get saved, the Holy Spirit has to make them alive. The Holy Spirit has to set them free. The Holy Spirit has to cause them to be born again. Now, when you share the gospel with someone who's unsaved, what's the one thing you can't do? You can't, can you set them free? Can you make them alive? Can you share? Can you tell? And thankfully, what does God do? God uses our sharing and telling to do the what? The job we can't do. We're responsible to tell and to share and to witness and to boldly proclaim it's God's job to make a person alive and the Holy Spirit to set them free. But nobody, you, you and I, we would never have become a Christian if the Holy Spirit had not set us free from sin and death and made us spiritually alive. If not, we would have been what? What did Paul say in Romans 8? Your mind would still be in the flesh. You would be hostile to God. You wouldn't be able to please God. You'd be spiritually dead. And every single person right now without Jesus, that describes their condition. Now, do people wake up knowing that? Are they conscious of that? No, they're living lives. They're blinded to that. But that's their true condition. And only a sovereign work of grace is going to get them out of that condition and the Holy Spirit has to set them free. So once the Holy Spirit sets you free, does He say, okay, I set you free, bye-bye, <laughs> and just leave? What does the Holy Spirit do? He comes and He, he lives inside of you. So, the, so here's where we're going to look at verses 9 through 12, the indwelling... Spirit. What does indwelling mean? He dwells. What does it mean to dwell? To live, to take up residence, to, to set his home in you. Okay? So what does Paul say in verse 9? Let's read 9 through 12. I mean, um, yeah, 9 through 12. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, if the Spirit of God, what? Dwells in you. He lives in you. How, do you, how are you a Christian? The Holy Spirit lives in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ living in him or her does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, verse 10. Paul makes the point that the Holy Spirit brings you spiritual life because of that perfect record of obedience credited to us from Christ that we saw back in verse 4. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives you that life. He's the one that gives you that ability to obey. He's the one that comes and lives in you. Then in verse 11, Paul says it again. As believers, the Holy Spirit does indeed dwell in us. What does he say? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, what's He going to do? Now, how does Paul describe the Holy Spirit that dwells? Now, think, stop and think about this. How does Paul describe the Holy Spirit who dwells in you? What does he say? How does he qualify it? The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That's pretty powerful. Who raised Jesus from the dead? We often think it's the Father, right? Which is true. But Paul here says the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. What kind of power does it take to raise someone from the dead? More than you have. A lot of power. Okay, resurrection power. Do you get what Paul's saying here? The Holy Spirit who has resurrection power lives in you, which means what? You have the power of God through the Holy Spirit living in you. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19-20. He says, What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places? The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, that power He's worked in us, And the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. So the Holy Spirit is living in us. He's dwelling in us. Not only has He regenerated us by His power, He's living in us by His power, giving us the power to live the Christian life. And what's the Holy Spirit going to do one day? What are we we living in right now? Does anybody like their body? Unless you're really vain, like I like my body. I mean, like, we live in frail disease-ridden, pimply, shrivelly, flabby, corruptive bodies, right? What's going to happen to our bodies one day? What does he say at the end of that verse? Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which is true, what's He going to do? He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. What's, what's the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead going to do to you? Future will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. What Paul's talking about is on that final day, the day of resurrection, you will get your brand new, resurrected, glorified body. It will be a miracle. You'll, if, you're, if, you've already, if you're already dead, you will rise first from the grave and get your new body. If you're alive, when Christ comes back, you get to go second, but you're going to get a new body too. 
So we will all get a brand new glorified body. Who's going to give that to us? The Holy Spirit. Why? Because he raised Jesus from the dead and did that to Jesus. And he lives in us and will do it to us. So think about the implications of your salvation from first to last. I don't know if we often think about the role of the Holy Spirit in this. He regenerated you. He caused you to be born again in the first place. He lives in you right now, giving you the power. And on that final day, when you get your glorified body at the resurrection, the Holy Spirit's the one that's going to do that for you. So He is indispensable to your life. So what would be your attitude towards the Holy Spirit? What would Paul say, you know, I'm telling you all these amazing things that the Holy Spirit's done. What could be the attitude towards the Holy Spirit? That's great, Holy Spirit. I'm glad you're, you know, you're some kind of force or fog out there. You're like... You know, I read the King James Version and it says Holy Ghost, so you're kind of like this misty fog that floats around in and out. Thanks, Holy Spirit, you're a cool dude. What does Paul say is our relationship and our attitude towards the Holy Spirit? Okay, look at verse 12. He uses debtor language. Debtor language. What does he say in verse 12? So then, brothers, we are debtors... Not to the flesh, but to live, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Paul says, listen, in your former life, when you were in Adam, when you were lost, when you were unregenerate, when you were spiritually dead, you were in debt. What does it mean to be a debtor? You, you owe. It's your master. You can't get out of it. You were dominated by sin. And all you could do was live for sin. But what has happened to you? Paul says two things have happened to you. We've been set free by the Holy Spirit. Back in verse 2, you've been set free. He has regenerated you. And not only has He regenerated and set you free from the flesh, but now He is indwelling in you. You've been indwelt by the Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit has regenerated you and the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, does that mean that you should just go on living according to the flesh? Number one, you can't. But number two, Paul says, listen, we're in debt now, but we have a new identity. We're in debt to live according to our new identity in the same way Paul described in chapter 6, that we live now as slaves to God. We live a life of gratitude to the Holy Spirit for setting us free, for living in us, and we rely upon His power to live the Christian life. We're indebted to Him in all that He does. Okay, now we get to verse 13. I've taught and written extensively on this verse over the years. Killing sin. This is in a very, very, very important passage of Scripture. Because, what's the conclusion up to this point? You've been set free from sin. You're no longer dominated by sin. The Holy Spirit lives inside you. So that must mean what? I'm never going to struggle with sin ever again. Now I want you to notice the language that Paul uses in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. 
I'm going to give you a quote from John Owen. You may remember this over the years. I've talked about this. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You guys know who Aaron Ralston is? Ever heard the story about Aaron Ralston? He wrote the book Between a Rock and a Hard Place. He's a mountain climber. They made a movie, 127 Hours. Back in 2013 when he was hiking in Utah, he was pinned between a canyon wall and an 800-pound boulder that crushed his right arm. So he was pinned there. And he was there for five days. And he had no, no access to water. So he's dehydrating. His arm is between a canyon wall and an 800-pound boulder. And so all he had was a dull utility knife. What do you think he did? He cut off his arm to get out of the rock. Now that's pretty desperate, right? But that was the only way he could live, was to cut off his arm. So sometimes cutting off your arm is the only way to live. Now that's an extreme example. Now why do I bring up the story of Aaron Ralston? Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark 9:43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Jesus, you're being a little bit too extreme there. What do you mean cut off my hand? Does Jesus mean for us to literally cut off our hands if it causes us to sin? No. Or we'd all be walking around with a lot of missing body parts if that's what was reality here. Like everybody would be walking in here like that guy on Monty Python, that, that scene where he's just like a stump, just a flesh wound. He's like, you know... Anyway, those of you who have seen it know what I'm talking about. Um, it's exaggeration, it's hyperbole to show the devastating nature of sin and how it needs to be dealt with. What does Paul tell us to do with sin? Put it to death. Now we're going to talk about that. So let's ask four questions of this text, Romans 8.13. Four questions. Big questions, we're going to have some sub-points, but let's just ask some questions of this text because there's four teachings in this text, this one passage. First question, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? I think we can probably answer that based upon everything that we've looked at. What does he say in verse 13? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Okay, what's he saying? What's to live according to the flesh? Is he talking about a saved person or a lost person? A lost, unsaved person. So what Paul's basically saying is the end product of being an unregenerate sinner who's dominated by the flesh, even though you're spiritually dead right now, it's going to eventually lead to death in hell. So I think Paul is talking about eventual hell for those that stay in unregenerate sin. So I believe Paul is talking about an unregenerate person who's never been made alive in Christ and given a new nature, one who's never been set free by the Spirit. But there is a clear warning here. Let me give the warning. Just because we're no longer enslaved to sin does not mean that sin is no longer an active influence. Let's talk about the difference between two words. And hopefully one of these works.
Okay, so when I say the word sin is a power, an enslavement, and a domination, what does that describe? That describes your relation to sin as an unregenerate person. If I use the word influence or strong influence, That's how we relate to sin as Christians. You see the difference between power and influence? This one you can't get out of. This one you can't say no to. This one you're enslaved to. This one you're spiritually dead. This one is, I've been made alive by the Holy Spirit, but I'm still going to struggle with sin, and it can be a strong influence in my life. And because it's such a strong influence in my life, I'm never going to be completely free of it until I step foot into heaven. So what needs to happen is I've got to kill it. I've got to kill that sin that's still remaining in me. So only when you get to heaven. So here's the, here's the point. Only when you get to heaven are you never going to struggle with sin ever again. Don't ever let anybody tell you that as a Christian you're, you'll get to the point where you never struggle with sin. The moment somebody tells you that they never struggle with sin anymore, it's the moment you know they're lying. Or they've moved the goalposts and they've redefined sin. Because what are they probably thinking? I don't smoke, chew, or go with girls that do. Well, that's good. I haven't murdered anybody this week. Well, I'm glad. I haven't lied on my, cheated on my taxes this year. Well, that's good. What they're thinking is, I've done a pretty good job of obeying the Ten Commandments outwardly, so therefore I don't ever struggle with sin. What does Jesus say about the Ten Commandments? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say anybody that has lust in their hearts already committed. So sin is always going to be there in your life, whether it's a thought, whether it's a word, whether it's a deed, you're always going to struggle, okay? So... Paul says here in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so we're supposed to put to death the deeds of the body. What are the deeds of the body? Now, we may initially think that Paul is only talking about outward actions. Sins we actually commit with the body. But based upon everything he said back in Romans chapter 6 and 7, can it also not be thoughts and intentions? So I think Paul's talking about any manner of sin, whether internal or external. And I might as well go ahead and draw a picture right now because we're going to get to it. The Bible speaks of two types of sins in general. I wish I had a drawing. Some of you have seen me draw this before. Okay, this is the tree, and this is the fruit on the tree, and this is the ground, and underneath the ground you have the roots that actually make the tree grow. If you don't have good roots, you don't have good fruits. Okay, there are fruit sins, and there are root sins. Fruit sins are the ones that, were, that are easy to see. These are more like outward actions. Lying, stealing, adultery, murder. 
These are like the outward actions that are easy to identify as sins. What's harder to identify are the root sins that actually cause the fruit sins. The root sins are things like lust and pride and selfishness and greed. Those things that lie deep within your heart. Both are sins. Whether internal, that you think or that you have desires or impulses, or whether they're outward that you actually act upon them. Both are sins. Now, how do I know that? Well, I've got a verse for you. Colossians 3, 5 through 8. It's like I said Sunday. I, I've got a um, verse for everything. Uh, Colossians 3, 5 through 8. Paul says, put to, put to death. Same language there. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Okay, let's look at the list of things we're to put to death. And see, you identify with me what are outward sins, what are inward sins. Okay, so let's look at the list. Sexual immorality, is that a fruit sin or a root sin? It's an outward action. Impurity. Maybe both. Passion. Maybe both. Evil desire, that's what? Internal. Okay, covetousness, internal. On account of these, the wrath of God's coming. In these, you too walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, both. Wrath, malice, slander, that's outward, and obscene talk. So in that list that Paul says in Colossians to put to death, he gives both outward and inward actions. So when Paul says, put to death the deeds of the body, what he's saying is put to death any sin that would rear its ugly head in your life, whether an outward action or an inward impulse, thought, or lust. Okay, third big question. What in the world does it mean to kill sin? He says there in verse 13, you must put to death... In Colossians, he says, put to death. He doesn't say maim, hit really hard. Anybody have the King James Version? It says mortify. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. When we say I was mortified, what do we mean in our culture today? I was mortified. I, I, was, I jumped off the... When I was in fifth grade, I jumped off the diving board on the deep end, and there were a bunch of girls down there, and my swim trunks came off in the middle of the pool. I was mortified. It literally happened. It's like you're, I'm embarrassed. You're like, okay, that's a real story. I was mortified. I, couldn't find, I could not find my swim trunks, and I'm not going to come up out of the water without any clothes on as a fifth grader. So I was mortified. Like, I'm going to hide down there. We say mortified. We, we say that I'm, I'm embarrassed beyond all measure. The word mortify is the old English word for killing sin. But let me give you the Greek word here. Paul uses thanatuo, which means literally to put to death, and it was oftentimes used as an execution. Execute sin. Don't mess with it. Don't trifle with it. Put it to death. Paul also uses, and this is important in the grammar, Paul uses the present active indicative verb choice, which basically means it's not just a one-time action, but it's an ongoing, continual, brutal, endless lifestyle of putting sin to death. In other words, you can't just put sin to death once. 
Okay, let me ask you a question. Does sin ever sleep? Does it take a halftime break? Is sin always coming at you? If sin's always coming at you, then you always have to be putting it to death. Okay. What did Jesus say to his disciples? Matthew 26, 40 through 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. If you are not killing sin, what's sin going to be doing to you? Killing you. Okay? So one caution needs to be addressed before we talk about the reason that putting sin to death is in the present tense is because you will never in this life ultimately put sin to death once and for all. You're never going to totally kill sin in your life. Total victory over sin should never be expected. Okay? That may sound weird coming from your pastor. What does total victory mean? That you're never, ever, 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 ever going to struggle with it again, even be tempted with it. Now, can you get to a point where you overcome addictions and no longer are enslaved to those as a Christian? Yes. But does that mean that there's never going to be a battle? Does that mean that you never have to be watchful? That that sin can rear its ugly head when you least expect it? Like, does sin lie dormant in you like a volcano that, that's dormant? What happens with a dormant volcano? What do we think? We don't think about it because it's dormant. But what could happen with a dormant volcano? It technically could blow at any time. But we don't pay attention to it because it's dormant. We may think, you know, I kicked that sin a long time ago. I don't struggle with it anymore. Well, the moment you think you don't struggle with it anymore, it could be the time it comes and rears its ugly head and, like, kicks you in the, you know what, because you're not ready for it. Okay? So 1 John 1.8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth's not in us. So I'm going to talk about what mortification is, but before I talk about what mortification or killing sin or executing sin or putting sin to death is, I think it would be helpful to tell us what it's not. What is it not? Let's clearly delineate what it's not. Okay, first of all, mortification or putting, when I say mortification, I'm just using the old term, putting sin to death is not just a cosmetic makeover of our sins. I'm not a woman, so I don't know what a makeover is. But what's a makeover? What do you do? You put makeup on to cover what you like look like. And then usually what do you have to do? I know my wife, she washes her makeup off at night. And so when you put makeup on, like when you put lipstick on a pig, what are you doing? The old expression? Okay, so a cosmetic makeover would be like this. A co mortification, like what you would not do, a cosmetic makeover is... I'm just going to kind of legalistically deal with these outward sins but never get to the root. I'm just going to kind of deal with like, I'm going to do some legalistic things to like make sure that I look good in front of others. I'll, I'll do a cosmetic makeover. You know, I have a problem with adultery. So I'm not, I have a problem with, I really, really have a problem with lust. And I know I'll probably never commit adultery, but I'll just do pornography secretly in my home where nobody's looking because, you know, that's better than actually committing adultery. But I'm never going to get down to the root problem of lust. I'm just going to kind of deal with the cosmetic makeover. That's not what killing sin is. 
you, like you kind of divert it. You cover it up. I got sin in my life. I'm going to kind of just cover it up over here. I'm going to make myself look good on the outside, but I'm never going to get down to the root. I'll just deal with the fruit sins, but never get down to the root. That, if you're going to kill sin, where do you kill? Where do you kill a tree? If you need to kill a poisonous tree, do you chop off the branches or what do you do? You got to get down to the. So if you're going to kill sin, you got to kill it at the roots, not up at the fruits. Okay, second, you can't just ignore sin and hope it goes away. Okay, that's not killing sin. Killing sin is actively pursuing killing sin in your life, not just saying, I deal with this stuff and I hope it goes away. Thirdly, you can't be occasional with this. Occasional attempts, I'm going to kind of do it here and there. I'm going to be haphazard. I'm going to kind of relax and coast. Here's the point. Sin never takes a break. So we need to be in a habit of continually killing sin. So let me suggest five aspects that will help us understand what it means to put sin to death. Okay? And these are not in any particular order, but somewhat of an order. First of all, we, we really need to have a, a seething hatred for sin as the destructive enemy it truly is. In other words, you're never going to put sin to death if you don't hate sin in your life. If you tolerate sin in your life, if you kind of live with sin in your life, you're never going to put it to death. You've got to get to the point where you hate it, so much so that you want to kill it. Romans 12.9, abhor, that means hate what is evil, hold fast to what's good. Abhor what is evil, hate what is evil. Even if that evil's inside of you, you've got to get to the point where you, you hate sin. Second, we need to seriously think about the guilt and corruption of sin. What does sin do if you act out on it? What's it going to do? It's going to cause major problems. So before you act out on sin, you need to, number one, think, I hate this sin. And if I act out upon this sin, it's only going to bring guilt and corruption. And it's going to, it may seem good at first, but after a while, it's going to, it's going to, Job has this interesting statement. It's like you have a chocolate-covered grasshopper. You put it in your mouth. And at first, it tastes kind of cool because it's chocolatey. And you put it on your tongue, and you're like, oh, this is really nice and sweet chocolate. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. Like after about five minutes, I'm sucking on a grasshopper. That's really sick. It's making my stuff. Like some of you are like, this is making me sick. Okay, Job, Job likens that to sin. Listen to what Job says in Job 20, 12 through 14. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, Though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It's the venom of cobras within him. Sin tastes good at first. For a second, it's sweet. But then when it comes to fruition, when you actually act out on it, it makes you want to vomit because of what it causes in your life. And so the second thing we need to do is you need to see that there's no such thing as an innocent little sin. All sin's offensive Okay, third. Okay, so number one, you're hating sin. Number two, you're realizing how 
corrupt and gross sin is. But third, you need to examine the shock and danger of sin. Some sins are actually dangerous. And you know how you sinned in the past, and you know the fallout of what it caused, and you know the consequences. So you need to start thinking through what's the fallout, what are the consequences, what's the danger if I give in to this sin. So how do you kill sin? You've got to starve it. What happens when you starve something? Eventually it's going to die. So we all have impulses and internal lusts, we all have root sins that we want to feed, right? We need to feed them. How do we feed them? Different people do different things to feed those. And the more you feed them, what's going to happen? The more the sin's going to grow. So you need to starve those desires so that they will eventually die. Okay? Fourth, If you're going to kill sin, this is a practical thing. We must be intimate with our particular areas of weakness and subsequently avoid areas or situations where we would be vulnerable. This is just common sense. Everybody here knows, if I were to get you alone and ask you in your heart of hearts, what areas of weakness do I struggle with, all of you would be able to tell me. And I'm not going to do that, but all of us would say, that's my area of weakness. So what does common sense say? Avoid it. Don't be around it. Don't even go there. Um, It's kind of like what the Proverbs says about the forbidden woman. Um, Proverbs 5, 3 through 8. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. And do not depart from the words of my mouth. And look at what he says there. Keep your way far from her. Do not even go near to the door of her house. Prostitutes standing on the side of the street. Come over here, sweet boy, or whatever the prostitute's doing. Her, her lips are dripping honey. And she's standing there, and she's like, come on to my house. I'm gonna, you know, we're going to have a good time. What's the, what's, what's, what's the proverb saying? Go the opposite way of the street. Don't make eye contact. Don't even go near her house. Don't even think about even walking close to her. It's the same thing with sin. If there's a sin that's right there you know you struggle with, don't even get close enough. Like when I was a youth pastor, I always had to talk with the youth, and some youth would say, well, Pastor Sean, how far can I go? I know I'm not supposed to have sex before marriage. How far can I go and not sin against God? I said, you're asking the wrong question. Because if I tell you how far you can go, what what are you going to do? You're going to go right up to the edge and see how close you can get. And what's going to happen? You're going to fall over the edge. You don't even want to get close to the edge. Don't even get close. Okay. So 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from it. Stay away from it. And here's the fifth thing that we need to think about. Ultimately, killing sin can be summarized with this word gospel repentance. Gospel repentance. When you're killing sin, you are in the constant process of repenting. Okay? When you repent of sin, when you deal with sin, when you hate sin and 
you put sin to death. Here's what happens. Let me just read this sentence the way I've written it. Whoops. Oh, you, it's not there. Trina must not have put that. You didn't, you didn't put that on the slide. Let me read it to you, though, because it's important. You just listen. Through repentance, we are then weakening sin in our lives. Slowly, keyword, through this painful, keyword, slowly through this painful process of killing sin, we begin to see the progress we're making in godliness, and sin gets weaker and weaker. It never fully goes away, but through persistent killing, we can see a slow transformation. Okay, here, here's the thing about killing sin. You're never going to totally do it, but the more that you practice killing sin, the more that, more that sin's going to be weak. It's going to be weaker. And then you're gonna, it's going to get weaker and weaker and weaker. Whereas before it was a powerful influence. And so the more that you put sin to death, the more it's going to be weakened in your life. It's not going to be totally eradicated. It's not going to be totally put away. It's going to be weakened. Okay? So, the unregenerate person, if they continue in sin, they are going to die in their sins. We are to put to death. That is, we are to kill, decisively, continuously be killing both fruit sins and root sins in our lives through this process of killing sin. But there's a fourth question. Because you may be thinking, well, that sounds like this is very hard to do. This is all legalistic. This sounds really like I've got to do a lot of work here to do this, and it's all upon me. Notice what Paul says there. Let's go back to Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What role do we play and what role does the Holy Spirit play in killing sin? Who's responsible for killing sin? It's a trick question. You are. Who ultimately gives you the power to kill sin? Holy Spirit. If sin is killed in your life, who gets the credit for doing it? The Holy Spirit. Who sustains you with the strength and the grace to be able to continually do this? What does Paul say there? You kill sin by the Spirit. You don't kill sin in your own righteousness. You don't kill sin in your own power. It's not willpower. It's not something that you do in your own strength. It is something that the Holy Spirit does in your life to give you the power to do it. Mark 9.43, just read those words again of Jesus. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to unquenchable fire. Sometimes we look at Jesus' words and say, Jesus, you're being too exaggerated. And we don't like the exaggeration. Maybe Jesus told us that so that we would stop and say, wow, sin is really a big deal in our lives and we need to deal with it. And Paul would say, Jesus would say, cut it off. And in a hyperbolic, exaggerated way, Paul would say, kill it. So let's talk about the conclusion because I think we only have about five more minutes. We may not have time for questions tonight. Let me get the conclusion. What's the conclusion of this chapter that we've seen so far? Romans 8, 1 through 13. There is absolutely, positively no more condemnation for us. Amen, yippee, yeehaw, praise the Lord, hallelujah. There's no more condemnation. Why? Jesus came in the flesh, lived the perfect life we could never live by obeying the law in our place and thought, word and deed. 
He then died on the cross and rose again for our sins. Then at a point in time, the Holy Spirit caused us to be born again and set us free from the bondage to sin. The Holy Spirit grants us the gift of faith so that we can personally trust Jesus for salvation. When we personally trust Jesus for salvation, His perfect record is credited to us so that it can be said that we have fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law and are thus not guilty under no condemnation. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us, granting us the power to walk in newness of life and to kill sin on a consistent basis. The Father planned our salvation in eternity past, sent Jesus to die for our sins. Jesus' Son came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again for us. The Holy Spirit regenerated us and now lives in us, giving the power to live the Christian life. Thus, our salvation is Trinitarian in nature.